It's all the same biology. Okay, we're now going to move into another area. Uh, we have not heard uh, a great deal uh, so far about uh, neurobiology. And uh, I must say that my own view about neurobiology is just more biology of another organ. Uh, I know that there are people uh, in the Institute who don't feel that way about it. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, genetics does work uh, in this arena. And uh, we're going to hear uh, not another approach to gene finding for diseases uh, in, in this arena, uh, and uh, it's not going to be, uh, it's, uh, and Connie Sepko uh, started out uh, actually as a neurobiologist, tracing the lineages, the, uh, the uh, paths of, uh, and movements of, uh, of neurons uh, by uh, genetics, by making them blue, okay, and I remember that when she was doing that. She was a student, and uh, since then she has uh, done uh, a great diversity of work on vision, and uh, especially the genetics thereof, and she's going to tell us about it. absorb a very important lesson from David, actually sort of somewhat removed. I was a, um, my first semester there, as all first uh, semester graduate students experience an indoctrination in terms of how to think about science. And this is very much uh, in the spirit of what David mentioned earlier of not memorizing facts, but learning a process whereby you can analyze the literature and think about uh, science in a productive way. And it was a, a course that we were indoctrinated in analysis of the literature or something like that. And I did appreciate it at the time. I was scared to death most of the time in the class. Um, but I did understand that I was learning something important. But it became increasingly clear to me year after the years passed that that was the most important class I had had because um, I'd forgotten all the facts I learned in all the other classes. And actually, about 10 years ago, I became head of our graduate program at the medical school, and we didn't have such a class. And that was the first thing I did was institute that class. And I must say, it's really benefited our students. And so, David, your, your legacy in education actually has continued beyond. I don't even know if you realize that. Uh, but it's been a wonderful experience for our students, and, and consequently, I hope, uh, the science that they will do. So now I'm going to tell you, though, about the work that we're doing in the, in the nervous system. And I agree with David's view of this, that it is another just hunk of biology. Um, and uh, the piece that we're studying is the retina, and I think most of you probably appreciate that the retina is within uh, the eye. It's a very thin sheet of neural tissue that lines the back of the eye. It's only about 200 microns thick, and it's just as much part of the central nervous system, or even the brain, if you will, um, as anything that you find under your skull. But the retina actually offers us several experimental advantages, also uh, physiological and, and psychophysical kinds of advantages in its study, most, most of which I won't be able to talk about today, but I think makes it a fascinating uh, tissue to study. So if you look at the cell types that one finds in the retina, again, all of which are derived from the neural plate, which forms all of the central nervous system, one also finds the basic kinds of cell types that one finds anywhere 
in the nervous system. That is, cells that receive information. In this case, these are photoreceptor cells, which sit here. And we have cells called rods and cones. Rods we use in very dim light, and cones we use for a high acuity vision uh, in daylight. So these are the primary sensory cells. They receive light, and they process that here in what's called the outer segment. This is a, a series of membranous disks sort of stacked up like pancakes. They receive light. They go through a signal transduction process, phototransduction. And then they have uh, an, a synaptic interaction down here where they talk to two kinds of interneurons, which are called bipolars and horizontal cells. So those cells receive the information from the photoreceptor cells. They talk among themselves in synapses here at this layer. Uh, they then pass that information on to another set of synaptic interactions down here. These bipolar cells interact with amacrine neurons uh, here at this layer of synapses. The result of this information processing is then passed on to these cells. These are now output neurons. So we have the primary sensory cells which receive the information. We have interneurons which process the information. And then these ganglion cells are the output cells. They send the information to the brain through their axons which leave the eye through the optic nerve. So again, these are the basic things that happen anywhere in a nervous system. There's information that comes in, there's processing, and there's information that goes out. So this is, again, a nice model for how these processes might occur. We're interested as developmental biologists in how these circuits form that extract various kinds of information. And one of the first steps in forming a circuit is to have the right cell types in the right place at the right time in development to make the proper connections. So we're starting basically with the first part of that, and that is how does a cell choose its fate in development? How does the cell decide, I'm a rod photoreceptor? How does it then enact that decision, become a, a very specialized cell that receives light? So that's, that's what I'll be talking about today. So we, when, we, when we consider this question, we look back in development at when these cells first appear in the organism. This is now a study done by Richard Young in the mouse, and I won't go through the details, but what these curves mean is that a cell that is fated to be, for example, a rod photoreceptor, goes through its terminal S phase. Again, neurons are forever post-mitotic, so they have a terminal S phase before they're, quote, born. These are the birthdays, so cells that will become rods, many of them are born, about 80% of the cells that are born on postnatal day zero, the day of birth of the animal, will become rods. That's what this big peak here means. And if you kind of look across here, you'll see that, first of all, there's a lot of rods in a mouse. Seventy percent of all the cells in the mouse are rod photoreceptors. That is rods, uh, <laughs> rods. Mice run around at night. They need a lot of rods. They need to be able to detect light in very dim situations. So they have a lot of rods. And in fact, 70 percent of all cells and 90 percent of their photoreceptors are rods. They also have all the other cell types I mentioned. And what you can see is that they're born in an orderly process. So early on, we find the genesis of ganglion cells amacrine cells, horizontal cells, and cone photoreceptors. Late, we find the genesis of more rods, bipolar cells, and Mueller glia. I didn't mention, but there's a non-neuronal cell type, a support cell called Mueller glia, uh, which is also present in the retina. So we find that there's an orderly process of genesis, and in fact, it's conserved across all the animals where this has been studied. So as we try to understand this process of generating this complex tissue, we think about this conserved aspects. We think about this order. We wonder why are ganglion cells bo always born first? Why are Mueller glia and bipolar cells always born last, et cetera? And that's the kind of thing we're trying to understand. So this is just a bit of background for you. Um, why is that not advancing? Should I check the plug? <laughs> Still plugged in. Anybody have any tips? What's that? 
All right. Force quit. By force quit, we have to go back and reboot. Everything appears connected. Um, sorry. <laughs> Okay, well, I can at least describe to you what I will be showing you. So I showed you a birth dating curve. Oh, this is pretty quick. Okay. So, again, if I go back to this birth dating uh, data, we know, again, that there's an orderly process. And one of our early questions was, does this have something to do with the types of progenitor cells, the mitotic cells that make these neurons? For example, perhaps there's a mitotic progenitor cell that just makes rod, a rod blast, and it's active at this time to make lots of rods. And perhaps there's an early progenitor cell which just makes ganglion cells and then it makes its ganglion cells and then it basically extinguishes itself. So to look at the relationship between progenitors and progeny, we and others marked progenitor cells and asked what kind of progeny do they make. And this is the kind of data that we saw marking with a retrovirus. One can also mark with dyes. We found that individual progenitor cells were multipotent. That is, they could give rise to, for example, in this case, two rod photoreceptors and a bipolar neuron. Here, many rod photoreceptors, bipolars, amacrins, and ganglion cells. In other words, these progenitors did not have sort of a simple kind of progression, as I showed you before, where there might be distinguished types or distinct types dedicated to making each one of them one cell type, but they were always multipotent right through the end of development, and that's cartooned here. One possible exception is that rods are made by a dedicated progenitor because we also found many clones that had only rods, However, you could explain that by the fact that the tissue needs to make a lot of rods. Um, we, simply, we, we, we certainly find rods in, multi, uh, in many cell type clones. So rods come from these multipotent progenitors, so does every other type of neuron. And in addition, perhaps, there's a rod-only progenitor. So finding this out then from the lineage analyses, and this was done in several species, led us to just think more about the problem. It wasn't a simple solution of having different kinds of progenitors, each one of which instructed its daughters to be a particular type. The problem was more complex. We had multipotent progenitors and very different kinds of uh, progeny, even in one division. So we're asking, well, where does the information come from? There must be some information coming from the mother cell or the progenitor cell. And perhaps there was also information coming from the environment that would then cause different outcomes from two daughters made by the same uh, progenitor cell. So we spent a lot of time looking to see, is information coming from the environment? And if so, what kind of information? How does it influence cell fate choices? And in addition, what kind of information is coming from the progenitor cells? And today I'm going to speak mostly about the intrinsic information, but I do want to say that information from the environment can also direct some of these cell fate choices. So we've done a lot of work now looking at the properties of different progenitors from different ages, exposing them to different environments and whatnot. And we've come up with the following model to explain the progression of these different cell types being made at different times in the retina. And what we see is that progenitor cells, although multipotent, that is capable of making more than one cell type over the period of genesis of all these cell types, at one moment in time, they're capable of only making a limited repertoire. So for example, in the beginning, I told you ganglion cells are made. In fact, these progenitors are totipotent. If we put a lineage tracer in, they make all the cell types. But at the early point in development, they're only competent to make one cell type, and that's ganglion cells, and so forth. So we don't actually know how many peaks are here. We simply know that at different times, these multipotent progenitors have a limited repertoire in terms of what they can make in an acute fashion, although their daughters will then take on later fates. So we have this idea that a progenitor is changing over time, changing in their competence to make different cell types, 
And furthermore, we even know at one period in time, let's say embryonic day 14 in the retina, the pool of progenitors present at that time seem to be heterogeneous, and we, we don't quite know the degree of heterogeneity, but we believe even at one time they're heterogeneous in terms of their ability to make different kinds of fates. Now that then makes it fairly complex for us to try to sort out these intrinsic properties that might lend themselves to making one cell type versus another. So we've turned to genomics to try to help us sort out uh, this complexity by taking individual progenitor cells as well as pools of progenitor cells and then examining them in a comprehensive fashion for their gene expression and in particular looking for differences among individual cells or among pools of progenitors from different times. But before I get to showing you that data, I just want to leave you with one concept, and this is how I think about retinal development. This is my, my big picture image taken off the web. This is actually how I go around thinking about this problem, and that is that we start with a pool of progenitors here at the beginning of development, and it's actually a unidirectional progression. That is, it doesn't seem like late progenitors can go back, and early progenitors cannot jump ahead. There has to be a progression that they go through. And we don't think that it's a single progression that a cell and, and it's, let's say its various progeny will go through, but in fact, the pool of progenitors at each step is somehow regulated, perhaps by feedback inhibition, perhaps by interaction among themselves, so that as they progress in this unidirectional fashion, they can have slight variations in their pathway, but one always ends up with the same product at the end. And if I can extend this analogy a little bit further, the extrinsic cues that we've examined might be, for example, in this case, wind or bumping into a rock or something like that, which can change them a bit laterally, but don't seem to be able to change them in terms of their temporal properties. That is, again, they can't jump ahead, they can't go backwards. The only thing we're able to do with extrinsic cues is move them laterally, and as a group, they can only make the temporally correct uh, cell types if we work with one age progenitor. So they can seem to move this way, but not appreciably this way or back. So the whole group is moving through, I think, regulating their decisions among themselves and by feedback from their progeny to achieve the final form. So there's quite a bit of regulation going on. Now, to go back to our problem then of how the intrinsic properties contribute to the um, ability of these cells to make different cell types, we've taken these genomics approaches. So what we're looking at initially is we look at the population of progenitor cells relative to their newborn progeny. We're particularly interested in these differences because the newborn progeny seem to be the cells which are in the active decision-making process, that is, deciding what fate they will be. Just as they exit their last cell division, those decisions are being made. So we're interested in comparing gene expression between those two groups. We're also looking at progenitors relative to mature tissue where those decisions won't be made. We're looking at progenitor cells, which are cells that don't have an indefinite um, proliferative capacity to stem cells, which do, looking for differences. And as I mentioned, we're comparing single cells to each other, looking for heterogeneity, which might correlate with some of the events we're interested in. So how do we get progenitor cells in order to do genomic profiling? We've taken this approach. Um, we don't have a convenient marker. Actually, could we turn the lights down, David, a bit on this? We don't have a convenient cell surface marker, which might enable us to then somehow isolate out just progenitor cells to look at their DNA or their, their gene expression. So instead, what we've used is the fact that progenitor cells cycle. That is, at some point in the cell cycle, they're 4N in terms of DNA content. So we can then take an unbiased selection approach and just take cells, which are 4N in their DNA content from different populations. We can compare the 4N cells to 2N cells the 2N cells include the post-mitotic progeny as well as cells which are cycling, but just not in the 4N state. So it's an enrichment procedure when we look at the genes that are higher in one population relative to the other. 
So what we do is compare the 4N cells to the 2N cells from a particular time point from the retina or other tissues, and we also compare the 4N cells to mature brain. And I'm just going to point out that we've done this on cDNA microarrays. These are the type that were pioneered at Stanford, uh, partly through the efforts of, of David Bostein as well as Pat Brown. We've used for that a collection provided by Bento Suarez of about 12,000 cDNAs taken from the brain. This is probably about 9,000 genes. And I'll just talk about the set that's enriched in the 4N versus 2N or the 4N versus brain uh, to try to see something that might tell us about progenitor properties. We've done this from three ages in the retina. We've also wanted to know whether genes that might be enriched in retinal progenitors might also be the same kind of genes enriched in other areas of the brain. And for this, we use the cerebral cortex and the cerebellum, two other areas where proliferation is taking place at the time we took the samples. And so we looked at all of these samples for an enrichment relative, again, to the two end cells or the brain. And we find in the retina about 800 or so genes that are enriched in this fashion out of this group of about 9,000. And we find that most of those are shared with the other CNS locations. That is, there seems to be a core set of transcripts enriched in these cycling cells relative to the postmitotic or the mature progeny. So this then is a group that we can then peruse and try to figure out what makes it so. What are these genes doing in these cells? And when we thought about how to analyze these, these, this uh, group of, of genes, we thought, well, one thing might be that they have genes that have to do with cell cycle itself. Because the two end cells, many of them are not cycling. The mature brain has very few cycling cells. So some of those genes have to do with cell cycle. We're not particularly interested in them for the question of potency of making different daughter types. Other genes, then, might have to do with being central nervous system. Other genes might have to do with multipotency. So in order to try to distinguish among that group of about 600 genes for these different properties, we thought we would also compare that set of genes or, or other genes from other tissues. And we thought to find the genes that have more to do with cycling behavior, we would look at some cells which are not multipotent progenitors, and that is fibroblasts growing in a dish. So these cells basically are dividing, and genes that are enriched in this population relative to brain, where there's very little cycling going on, might then be the cycling genes that we might want to subtract out of the genes uh, that we're interested in. And for potency, we decided to look at embryonic stem cells, which obviously have the potency to make all cell types in the body. And we might then see a set of genes shared among embryonic stem cells and CNS progenitors, but not present in the fibroblasts. And perhaps those have something to do with multipotency. So we made these comparisons, and we were a bit surprised at the answers that we got. We did, we, this is now a Venn diagram showing the overlap among genes enriched in 3T3 cells relative to brain, embryonic stem cells relative to brain, and neuroprogenitor cells relative to brain. Surprisingly, those that we thought would be really interesting would be the ones that were only shared as enriched between the embryonic stem cells and the brain progenitors, but there was only seven in that category. And if you look at them, there's nothing particularly striking among those seven. 34 were shared among all as enriched relative to brain. And in fact, those did appear to be the cell cycle-related genes, cyclins, CDKs, CKIs, the genes that we know uh, that are recognizable as, as driving the cell cycle, responsible for its regulation. Uh, we found some that were shared among embryonic stem cells and fibroblasts, and some between neural progenitors and fibroblasts, but not very many. So we're still thinking about all of this, trying to figure out what is it telling us. Um, and at the moment, we're not sure. I'd say that, in fact, this is very much a work in progress. This is the type of thing that's going on as people consider some of these complex uh, developmental processes, trying to get a handle on how to use genomics to then pull out the subsets of genes that are correlated with the kind of processes we're studying. And so this is very much ongoing. 
I would say that the approach seemed to work. If we did look at those that were enriched in ret retinal progenitor cells relative to fibroblasts, we did find the genes that we expected. These are transcription factors and other genes that we know are enriched in retinal progenitor cells, and we know something about what they do. But in addition, I just want to say that we found a lot of genes which had to do with a very dynamic transcription and translation process. That is not just making RNAs, but degrading RNAs not just making proteins, but degrading proteins, and also chromatin remodeling. So there is an enrichment for those kinds of genes in these progenitor cell populations. I should say, though, that it's also hard to take away global lessons. If you look through the list of annotated functions among all of these genes that are enriched in any of these populations, one finds a very small percentage of them actually have annotated functions. And those are probably heavily biased towards the functions that we've studied the most as, as a population molecular biologist over the last 20 or so years, we know how to recognize transcription factors. There are many things that we don't recognize. So although I've just told you that they're enriched for these things, remember that there's also a bias towards recognizing uh, these types of functions. So there's many things that we have no annotated function for. They're just ESTs um, and no recognizable motifs. So I think, that, again, this is very much a work in progress. And uh, hopefully, as we learn more about functions, in some cases from model organisms, we'll be able to learn more about these types of genes. Okay, so we'll continue then trying to do this with single cells. We're now into hundreds of single cells. We find lots of heterogeneity. We're now trying to confirm that heterogeneity as not just being an artifact of making single cell probes for these arrays, but in fact are real differences among single cells. And that work will continue for quite a while. And one of our first questions is just, well, how many kinds of progenitors are there? And we're starting to close in on that. Now, besides the fact, well, I've mentioned that there's intrinsic properties, there's also extrinsic properties or extrinsic cues, and a cell has to put those things together to then choose its fate. And to look at that process, we decide to look at one particular cell fate decision, and that is for the photoreceptor cell. So for this particular uh, set of questions, we're looking at rod photoreceptors in the mouse. I mentioned they're very abundant, so they're fairly easy to work with. They're also born late, that is, after the animal is born, rods are still being born. So introducing genes, antibodies, whatever reagent we wish, into the eye of an animal uh, is fairly easy to do because we can do that postnatally. They also have many specific gene products. This helps in many ways. For example, just providing markers to recognize rods as they're developing, uh, that is very much aided by having good markers. And I should also mention, especially in light of what's uh, been talked about here today, is that rods are very susceptible to degeneration. There's now 130 loci mapped in humans which lead to blindness. And about half of those that have been now identified are rod-specific genes. So anything we learn about rod development, we hope, will also shed some light on these other loci which have not been uh, identified yet, and also the processes that go awry in these cells that lead to degeneration. So this is just a cartoon to sort of summarize some of the things we know about rod development, mostly from work we've done in vitro. We know that rods are made by these mitotic multipotent cells, which are capable of giving rise not just to rods, but also bipolar interneurons, amacrine interneurons, and Mueller glial cells. I just draw one alternative here. This mitotic cell makes a post-mitotic daughter. Again, all these cells are post-mitotic. We know one, one of the first things that happens is it turns on a transcription factor, which I'll talk about in a moment, a homeobox called CRX. Some number of days go by, and in fact, in the mouse, it's fixed at a five to six day interval before the first definitive rod-specific gene comes on, and that is rhodopsin. It's the pigment that absorbs light in rods. And several things are happening during this interval that we'd like to define. For example, the commitment, the irreversible decision to be a rod occurs during this period. Um, and we'd like to know why, in fact, it's a fixed delay. And we have not been able to change that delay. It appears to be intrinsic. 
And I'll mention that some of the extrinsic cues include taurine. And I mention this because David Altshuler's name has been mentioned here. This was actually David's thesis project. He's the one that determined that extrinsic cues can actually influence the formation of rods. And he found that one of the molecules, a small molecule, taurine, which is derived from cysteine, can positively influence this pathway. And actually, we're still trying to figure out um, how taurine signals cells. But we do know it seems to be important in this interval. I will be going through the other details. I just put this up here to tell you that we're interested in all in defining now molecularly everything that happens in these cells as they go through their decision-making process, their initiation of differentiation, which would be this step, and then their final steps, which lead to the elaboration of this outer segment and the axonal terminals of this cell. So basic developmental biology questions. So I mentioned that CRX comes on early as soon as the cell becomes post-mitotic. This is a homeodomain protein of the OTX family. Uh, when we first discovered it, we were very interested in it because it was, in fact, photoreceptor-specific. Now, that was exciting to us because, as I mentioned, there are many photoreceptor-specific genes already known. Many of these have functions in photoreception, that is, in the phototransduction or some aspect of building the outer segment. It's a very specialized cell, so there are, it appears that that's accomplished by having very specialized gene products. But we didn't know how the transcription of those genes was restricted to just photoreceptor cells. A very simple hypothesis would be that there's a photoreceptor-specific transcription factor responsible for turning those genes on. But until we found CRX, in fact, we didn't know of such a specific transcription factor. So when we discovered this, we were very excited, thinking that it might regulate those photoreceptor-specific genes. We also thought it might be a human disease gene, because as I mentioned, many forms of human blindness are due to photoreceptor-specific genes. And this was one. We then mapped the human homologue, found it mapped into a locus called cone rod dystrophy 2, which led to early blindness. We entered into some collaborations and found that, in fact, there were missense mutations in this protein in those families. Other groups have now looked at other forms of blindness and similarly found mutations in CRX and early or later onset uh, forms of blindness. So CRX appears to be very important um, in maintaining or perhaps initiating aspects of photoreceptor function. So we then went on to study how does it work by making a mouse knockout. What we found in these mice were that CRX uh, deficient photoreceptors failed to elaborate this outer segment, failed to develop the proper terminals where neurotransmitters release, they failed to do this, and subsequently they would die. Now, interestingly, it was not important for the actual fate commitment. That is, cells started to become rods or cones. They just could not complete their differentiation. So it wasn't a determination gene, but it was very important for the differentiation of these cells. Because it was a transcription factor, we then wondered, well, what are its target genes? We started then doing both SAGE and CHIPS. And I don't think SAGE has been mentioned here, and not everyone knows SAGE. It's a method that was worked out by Bert Vogelstein and colleagues. And basically, I'll just call it a fast EST project. That is, one can sequence small bits of the cDNAs that one can make from an RNA population taken from any tissue. And by basically quantifying the little bits or the little tags that are taken from each RNA, one can then get a, a catalog of genes that are expressed in a tissue and can compare quantitatively, let's say, the level of, that, of a particular RNA in a mutant versus a wild type. You can also do that with chips. You can take total RNA population from mutant and wild type, make probes, and apply them, in our case, to cDNA microarrays made from the retina. So we've done that. We've compared data then from CRX mutant, CRX wild type, at a time in development before we get this overt phenotype to try to find what are the genes that might be regulated directly or indirectly by CRX. And this is just an example of how one looks at SAGE data. You simply look at the frequency of tags. This green tag, for example, is high in sample A, low in sample B. So it's a very easy way to analyze the data. One can also do more cumbersome kinds of analyses on chips and compare the genes that go up and down using both methods. 
When we do that, we indeed find many genes that go up and down. And if we look at the, um, the um, expression profile of some of those genes, we find that those that go down in the mutant tend to be photoreceptor specific. And in fact, I should compile this better now. In fact, at the time, we call these putative photoreceptor specific genes that were down in the mutant. We've now confirmed that. So in other words, many, many of the genes which are down in the CRX mutant are genes which were already known to be photoreceptor-specific genes. That was very nice as fulfilling the original hypothesis that we had. We also used this criterion to find new genes which had not previously been known to be photoreceptor-specific just by virtue of the fact that they were down in this mutant. Interestingly, we also found a lot of genes that were up in the mutant, and they were in different functional categories, mostly having to do with metabolism. Uh, protein metabolism, lipid metabolism, very few here having to do with transcription. Um, so this is a completely different spectrum of annotated functions, and you can start to make up models as to why they might be upregulated in this mutant. And we've been spinning out various models, but I don't really know the answer to this yet. But anyhow, this then gave us a large number of genes to play with for various aspects of our interests. One is to look at the sequences that CRX might be using to regulate these genes. So we used a bioinformatics approach to find a common sequence that we did not know about before that turned out to be upstream, sometimes up to 20 copies of this sequence upstream, or actually sometimes in the first intron, of genes that were down in the mutant. It would now like to do chromatin immunoprecipitations to see if, in fact, this is a target sequence for CRX binding in vivo. And we're going to continue to try to do that by looking at transcription factors that we now know are in photoreceptors in a specific fashion and ask, again, through knockout or gain-of-function techniques, what genes do they regulate? And so in that way, build up networks of transcription factors um, and their output to look at the various processes I already told you about. So CRX was our first um, attempt at this. The second thing we've been doing is using SAGE to look at the photoreceptor development at different periods of time and also, I should say, chips, and not only to just restrict ourselves to photoreceptor development, but other cell types born at different times in the retina. So what we've done is take every other day in mouse development, we take, a, take the retina, make a pool of RNAs from several retinas, make a SAGE library, and then enumerate the transcripts uh, in these different libraries. We've now uh, collected, I think, 12 libraries, over 800,000 SAGE tags, so we can very comprehensively look across development and find tags that go up and down in concert with events that we're studying. So how have we then analyze these data? So we've used these data so far to pull out uh, two kinds of things we're interested in. One was to look at those data to try to identify the full set of photoreceptor-enriched genes. Now, we could partially do this from the CRX work that I told you about. We could also do it from the temporal regulation, that it, look for genes that are correlated with photoreceptor development. We could also do it because we micro-dissected out the outer nuclear layer, and that's the portion that has all the cell bodies for rod photoreceptors. So I'll show you that data in a moment. Uh, we then also looked at candidate regulators for other processes, and if I have time, I'll tell you a little bit about that. But just to return to how did we use the SAGE data to find the photoreceptor-enriched or specific genes, we simply did a, a very um, standard kind of analysis at looking at the occurrence of various genes in various SAGE libraries with the predictions that we could make based on what we knew about photoreceptors, that is, if something's photoreceptor enriched or specific, it should be present at a higher tag ratio in our micro-dissected outer nuclear layer than it would be in total retina. We looked among our tags and found a number that looked like that. It should be lower in the CRX mutant, or at least some of them would be lower in the CRX mutant. It would, such tags would be higher later in development because that's when photoreceptors develop compared to early in development when they're not really differentiating. 
And they should be tissue specific. That is, they shouldn't be found in other libraries elsewhere in the body. And we made some outlier libraries. We made a hippocampus library to look at other CNS locations. In collaboration with the Seidman lab, we looked at other, we looked at transcripts in the heart. There was already in the literature from Vogelstein's work, fibroblast sage tags. So we looked for those that were not present in these other libraries. Those tags that then fulfilled all four criteria, we thought have a very high probability of being photoreceptor enriched or specific. Those that fulfilled three out of four, even two out of four, also we thought would be enriched for that kind of gene. And that turned out to be the case. So I just show you a sample of the data. So this is a set that was present, that, uh, that fulfilled three out of four criteria. If we looked at that collection then of sage tags and their corresponding genes, we found that 48 of those actually were already known to be photoreceptor specific in the literature. And of those, 38 were already known to be human disease genes. We then found another 72, which were previously not known to be photoreceptor enriched or specific. We then mapped the human homologs and found that in this case, 28 of them mapped into disease loci, mapped in the human, but for which there had not been an identified disease gene. Others then have since been uh, characterized further. So this kind of analysis then gave us a large number of genes that were putative photoreceptor specific. We confirmed those by doing in situ hybridization. So this is now the outer nuclear layer where the rotting cone cell bodies reside. And you can see a SAGE profile. You probably can't read all this, but a SAGE profile that matches what I've just described uh, is shown here. We then take genes that have that profile, do an in situ hybridization to see if, in fact, it's photoreceptor enriched. And you can see in this case it is. So the scorecard for that then is that we pulled out uh, 347 probes that had a SAGE profile predicting them to be photoreceptor enriched or specific. 264 turned out to be so. They're human homologs. 60, 68 of them mapped to uncloned retinal disease loci in humans, representing 33 distinct loci. So these are now an enriched set of candidate genes for the human geneticist to look at uh, for these loci. And probably many of these others could also be examined uh, for disease relationship. So that set of genes, I should also say, is very interesting to us, and we are following them up for a role in photoreceptor development. We're looking for those that are particularly um, expressed in that window that I showed you from the time a cell is born until the time it differentiates, thinking that things that are high in that period might have something to do with those early processes, such as commitment and the initiation of differentiation. So we're now following many of those genes up in functional studies to try to understand their role in photoreceptor development. Similarly, we're interested in other regulators for other types of um, cell type genesis and differentiation. And if we look across the different ages in our SAGE library, this is the set embryonic day 12 through about postnatal day 10. Here are the retinal libraries we made. These are the 3T3 fibroblast heart and, and uh, hypothalamus libraries I, I mentioned before. And over here is the CRX libraries and the outer nuclear layer libraries. And basically what we do is just look at the tag uh, frequency across these libraries, looking for things that go up and down in concert with events that we want to study. And in some cases, we also postulate that there might be retinal specificity, so we can look for things that are absent in these other libraries. And this is just an example of the data. You can see it's very easy to find peaks of expression. We go back and we do in situ hybridizations with many of those to then find out which cell type they're expressed in. And from that, then, we, get, we generate lists of candidate genes for functional studies. So this is just then a summary of what we've done. For the in situ hybridization, we've picked out 1,000 genes approximately. And we look at their um, expression on about, at about 10 different ages in the retina. We also looked at the heads, uh, some cases the whole embryo at the early stages. And we find that there's quite a few then that have profiles uh, that mirror the SAGE profiles when we look at those by in situ hybridization. 
And uh, they f we find very interesting patterns um, that correlate again with events that we're trying to study. I'll just show you a snapshot of some of the data. These are genes that are expressed in different subsets of progenitors at different times. Remember I mentioned to you early on that we think that early progenitors are different than late progenitors in terms of the cell types they can make. We think there are some intrinsic differences among those progenitors. We'd like to find genes that then mirror those differences. And these are candidates for those differences. These are, these are some genes that are um, heavily expressed. In, this is the progenitor area of the tissue at embryonic day 16, but basically they, they sort of peter out so that we look at these and we say, okay, well maybe these early expressed uh, progenitor genes have something to do with the genesis of the early cell types. We can then try to do functional tests to examine that. And this is just quantitation of their SAGE tags over time. This one, th these are subsets of genes which come on later in newly post-mitotic cells faded to different final fates. These would then be candidates for those, that process, again, of commitment and early differentiation. So again, by looking at um, the SAGE tag levels and doing in situ, we pick out regulators for those processes in different cell types. We've also extended this to the mature retina. So we're being fairly grandiose about this and taking late or mature tissue, taking individual cells and trying to make catalogs for the differentiated neurons. This is useful for many things. For us, it gives us markers of the mature cell types. For retinal physiologists and anatomists who are trying to work out the circuitry of the retina, it gives them a lot of tools. They'll have a, then a list of the repertoire of receptors, channels, et cetera, in individual neurons so they can then have more informed pharmacological interventions. They can also use promoters that might be specific to late cell types for various kinds of genetic manipulations. And this is just then a, a, an example of an atlas we've made in the mature retina, taking the probes, doing in situ hybridizations. You can see that we come up with you know, eight genes, which are only in the ganglion cells, uh, 10 genes, which are in all of the inner retina uh, interneurons, genes that are across the whole retina, genes that are in subsets of amacrine cells, and so on and so forth. So this catalog then we hope will be very useful to the whole community of biologists which study the retina, and hopefully even beyond, because many of the properties that we find in retinal neurons are shared elsewhere in the CNS. So many of these genes will also be expressed in subsets of neurons elsewhere in the brain. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to give out all these probes to anybody who's interested, and they can start to look at their favorite part of the CNS to see if, again, again these, these turn out to be subset markers of use to them. And lastly, I'll just tell you, you know, this, these data are obviously uh, very broad and we're going to spend forever mining them, but just some of the things that have emerged that are interesting to us so far, and that is that we find splice polyadenylated non-coding mRNAs with strong dynamic expression. Now, we call them non-coding because we can't find an open reading frame greater than about 50 amino acids worth. So it is possible that in some cases they do code small, they encode small peptides, but we're at least calling them at the moment non-coding, and they look like Paul II transcripts. Uh, we also find Mueller glia resemble progenitors, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But just to show you how these non-coding profiles look, these are some of the SAGE tag profiles. Again, you can see this one, for example, goes up late in development. It's fairly striking the way it goes up. This one's sort of, you know, sort of middling throughout development. This one has some interesting peaks. If we then look at where these are expressed, we can again make some hypotheses just based on where they're expressed. One of them is expressed in progenitor cells. We then think it has something to do with progenitor cell biology. Uh, this other one, it looks like it's an early differentiating rod. So again, we propose it has something to do with the initiation or the maintenance of the rod state. This one has a pattern which we're completely stumped by. This is one of the fun things about doing this comprehensively. We would never have predicted a pattern like this. It's kind of spotty throughout progenitors and newly post-mitotic cells. We have no idea what that might be doing. So we can then start to uh, make up hypotheses about what these might be doing based on their expression pattern. 
Another sort of interesting thing is by looking at the late retina or the adult retina, we found a number of genes, 63 in all, which appear to be restricted in their expression to the non-neuronal cell type, that is the Mueller glial cell of the retina. Now there's 63 that appear to be specific in the adult to that cell type. If we look earlier in development, we found 62 out of 63 were also expressed in progenitor cells. So here's just an example of one. Here you can see this gene is expressed throughout development in retinal progenitor cells. You can see from these ages, but then it's also maintained in the Mueller glial cell. The one exception is clusterin or ApoJ, and it's expressed only in the mature Mueller glia. Now the reason this is interesting is from the standpoint of repopulating some of the neurons in the case of neuronal death in the retina and elsewhere in the CNS. It's been found elsewhere in the CNS that there are stem cell populations which can divide and make neurons. Even in the adult animal, one can find such stem cells. And there's evidence from Arturo alvarez Bula's lab that those stem cells elsewhere in the CNS are actually glial cells. So these Mueller glial cells, in fact, molecularly look very much like progenitor cells, giving one hope that, in fact, they could be somehow induced to then make neuronal cell types, perhaps being able to repopulate some of the dying cell types and some of the forms of human blindness. And this would principally be photoreceptor cells or ganglion cells, which die in glaucoma. So this finding then, I hope, will spur on some work in this area to try to tickle these Mueller glial cells just right so that they can then repopulate the retina in some of these diseases. And the last thing that I'll turn to is just some um, technical aspects of how we hope to pursue the function of these genes. Obviously, when one gets these long gene lists, that's just the beginning. What we'd like to know is how these genes function in the various um, aspects of retinal biology that I've told you about. So how can we do that? So in the past, what we've done is we've taken retrovirus vectors, which is one of the types of gene transfer vectors we like. We put a gene in, we infect the retina, and we actually do a clonal analysis. We ask how have we perturbed the clonal composition, maybe the size of the clone, the composition of the clone, or even how the cells look where they migrate to by adding a gene. That's fairly slow and tedious. We can do far more if we can introduce, without having to go through a viral vector step, uh, genes for misexpression studies, and we've been now doing that with in vivo electroporation. So what we do is we simply inject DNA, and now we can also inject very large pieces of DNA and also map regulatory regions which reside in those large pieces of DNA. We can also add two or three genes at once. Uh, we can then add the DNA uh, by simply injecting it in the area between the retina and the pigmented epithelium, and then actually by putting a voltage across, transiently open holes in the membrane so the DNA goes in non-specifically, and it gets expressed there for a long enough period of time to allow us to assay what happens when we add genes. This is an example of an addition of a gene at postnatal day zero. We, we co-electroporate GFP so we can find the cells that have picked up the DNA. And what you see here is a lot of photoreceptors labeled by the GFP. This persists for at least 50 days. We also can find some cells in the internuclear layer and Mueller glial cells that pick up the DNA. So this enables us then to add, to do gain-of-function studies, also MAP promoters, and that's one of the things we're doing. And it's also opened up for us the possibility of reducing gene function by reducing the RNA for certain genes using the new methods of RNAi. So I'm sure many of you know that one can take double-stranded RNAs and target specific transcripts. We've learned an enormous amount from the work of Andy Fire and others uh, looking at this in C. elegans, um, and it's been used in other model organisms. Yang Shi at Harvard came up with some vectors which use a small a U6 promoter from, from humans, and uh, one can then put in uh, sequences that are directed against the gene of interest. When, these, when this RNA transcript is made, it folds so that one has a double-stranded portion plus a loop. And apparently, this will then trigger destruction of the cognate RNA. 
And we've been very happy that this has worked for all the genes we've targeted now. We can do this in vivo in mouse, rat, and chick. And this is just an example of a phenotype. There's a transcription factor called RAX. It's a homeobox gene. We haven't known what it does uh, from a loss of function perspective, except for early in development. We know it's required for, for the formation of the retina. It's present throughout development. We did not know it's late function. If we put in a construct uh, directed against RACs, what we find is that the cells that pick up the DNA, which are shown here, for some reason, all of these cells then line up in a particular position, whereas most photoreceptors just transduced with GFP are located throughout the outer nuclear layer. Their cell bodies are located throughout. We now have this peculiar arrangement, and most of these cells don't express the rhodopsin protein, which rods normally express. So RACs then is required for proper development of rod photoreceptors. We can now follow this molecularly. We take the GFP plus cells back out of the animal by a fax sort. We take their RNA, we then put it onto a chip, and we ask what RNAs have changed in their level relative to control from the addition of the RNAi reagent, or the reduction of, of RACs. And we also add back RACs, and we look at a gain of function scenario, again, faxing out the GFP plus cells and comparing that to the loss of function. So by adding and taking away genes and using chips as our assay, we could start again to get into these molecular networks that underlie the differentiation of these various cell types. And I'll just stop there then and tell you who's been doing all of the work. The progenitor study that I told you about initially was primarily done by a postdoc, Rick Livesey, who now has his own lab, uh, the Wellcome Trust in Cambridge, England. He was helped by graduate student Rachel, uh, Tracy Young and a technician, Rachel Young. SAGE was done almost single-handedly by a very talented postdoc, Seth Blackshaw. And amazingly, not only did he look at 800,000 SAGE tags, do 1,000 probes on 10 sections, but he remembers most of the names of the genes, which still blows me away. Um, and he was helped also by Rebecca Fraioli, a, a medical student. The electroporation assays were worked out primarily by a postdoc, Takahika Matsuda, with help from Tracy Young and Sunny Harpavad. And I'd also like to thank, I forgot to thank uh, the organizers for inviting me. I'm very honored to be present here today uh, with such a group of speakers and also at such an auspicious time. Thank you. Thank you. Got a couple of questions. Time for a couple of questions, if there are any. Everybody wants coffee. Don't blame you. Okay. So let's be back. Let's try to get back on time. Let's be back in 15 minutes, please. Thank you.